Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Two words. No excuses. That's what we're starting with. If you guys take away one thing, just one thing, from all the people whom I put in front of you on this podcast, I insist it be the message that if they can do it, what's my excuse? And yes, that includes wanting to do something so badly, but maybe you've just been too afraid to step up to the plate and swing that bat, or whether it be conquering your fear of roller coasters or flying out of the country for the first time. I don't care what it is, starting a business. We all have that one thing we want to do or overcome just to say, I did it. Well, after you hear the nothing short of remarkable story of my guest today, you're going to drop what you're doing and go for it. I, I would bet money on it. Picture this. Blonde, blue-eyed, gorgeous, athletic, we hate her. That was Kirsty Ennis. <laughs> At the tender age of 17, yes, that's her giggling, Kirsty enlisted in the Marines, where in 2008 she began her service in aircraft mechanics. She worked her way up to aerial gunner. That's the person who mans the gun at the chopper door, but also has to serve as the mechanic. I don't know about you. I can't even, like, chew gum and walk at the same time, but that's what she was doing. That's exactly what she was doing in 2012 at the age of 21 during her second tour in Afghanistan when the helicopter she was flying in crashed in Helmand province, Afghanistan. Six soldiers on that military transport chopper died. Kirstie was clinging to life with a mangled leg, a large chunk of her jaw, lower face torn off, 40 surgeries in the amputation of her left leg. Today, not only has she become a champion snowboarder, she's got three master's degrees. She's going for her doctorate in education and she climbed to the top of six of the world's seven tallest summits. I can hear you all saying, well, well, what about Everest? She has just returned from, yes, Mount Everest. I just cannot tell you how happy I am to introduce you to my friend, retired U.S. Marine Sergeant Kirstie Ennis. Hi, Kirstie. Hey, oh, thank you so much for, well, first of all, the amazing introduction, but then also just to be able yeah, to touch base and speak with you again. Oh, I'm thrilled. I'm thrilled because I was I was like your mom of some sort, like your second <laughs> yeah. mom. The whole time you were scaling the face of Everest, I was like, oh, my God, I would just every night say, please, just get her back safely. So I cannot tell you how happy I am that you are. Um, t- hey, everybody out there, did I mention Kirstie was on the cover of ESPN magazine's Body Issue? <laughs> Rock climbing totally naked. You have to Google it. It's unbelievable. <laughs> Kirsty. to be able to talk about your attempts to climb Everest, we really do have to go back to when you signed on the dotted line to defend our country. I mean, most 17-year-olds can barely wake up to get to high school on time, and yet you were driven to join the Marines. What was behind the engine that drove you to do that? Well, I think it really came down to um, 
just wanting to serve, like wanting to be able to protect people who couldn't protect themselves, like wanting to go to somewhere that was far away um, and do something that was bigger than myself, like myself. And I honestly give full credit to my parents. Obviously, they were both both Marine Corps veterans and um, just being able to leave uh, and to be able to, again, serve people that weren't here, serve people that, um, yeah, would never be able to experience what we have here. Mm. And so that's what it came down to. Well, your friends at the time, high school friends, I mean, <laughs> I can't imagine what they said. What were they saying? Because many of them, I'm sure, were, were heading off to college or had a job of some sort. Were they like, oh, honey, they- what are you doing? <laughs> Oh, they thought I was absolutely crazy. I mean, no, I had scholar. And, oh, I like I'm not even kidding. Like I have, I had scholarships. Um, I had like so I was very mischievous, but I also had straight A's. Um, but they thought I was insane. But the fact that I was, I wanted to leave early, so I graduated, if you will. I should have graduated with the class of 2008, and I left the class of 2007 just mm-hmm. because I wanted to go and serve and. There were people in my life that were just like, that is who Kirsty is. Like she, she wants to help and she wants to give um, and she's not being challenged. And then there were other people who were like, gosh, what is she doing? You know, there is so much left. Like you have two more years of college, like join as an officer. And I just wasn't having it. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah. So now like I get to go back home and, and see some of those people still, and the ones who like doubted me beforehand. Yeah, get to go back and hug them all. <laughs> well, absolutely. And uh, to me, I think about uh, you taking that step. People should understand. I'm sure they know, but uh, you know, reminder here: the country was in the throes of a horrific and vicious war with both Afghanistan. <laughs> I mean, it, this this was this was just insane, and Iraq, and and clearly, this was a very hot war, very very dangerous. Yeah, when I left home in two thousand eight, I think it was terrifying for my parents for them to actually be able to sign their daughter away, essentially. But in two thousand eight, like I wasn't afraid, uh, and I think that was kind of unheard of. <laughs> but that's what I wanted to leave for. I wanted to be able to protect people who couldn't protect themselves. And you find yourself um, on a on a sea stallion several years into your service, second tour in Afghanistan, and you're on this gigantic chopper, which is a military transport vehicle that's flying over Afghanistan, and it starts to take some enemy fire, and in its effort to dodge that enemy fire, it crashes. Did you realize it was about to crash? Take us back to that time. I knew um, I knew there was an issue. Um, that was there, there was no secret in that, and I knew what was about to happen. I guess is is the best way to put that. Because um, I can very vividly remember, like looking at the ground through night vision goggles and saying five, four, three, two, one. You know, um, hitting the ground. But instead of, yeah, but instead of us landing safely, it was just a crash. And 
Yeah, I can still hear uh, my pilots both screaming to me you know, about, you know, where are the gunners and my tail gunner, my military hero, my idol, like the one person that I really, oh, I need to stop crying. Um, but the one person that I really looked up to is my tail gunner not knowing where he was for that split second, like kept me awake and kept me alive. What's his name? Um, what was his name? Uh, Gunner Sergeant Pischel. And his, I mean, he's still alive. He is still, he is. Thank God. Yeah, no, he is. He is still good. Um, but it was one of the moments that was the scariest of my life. And the time in my life, yeah, that made me not necessarily like second guess what I was doing, but reassured me that I needed to check check in and take care of my people. Um, we'll just put it that way. And this, as your left leg was severely crushed, you suffered traumatic brain and spinal injuries, shattered your jaw, endured severe facial lacerations. When did you realize the magnitude of what had happened to your body? Because adrenaline, I'm sure, is rushing through you and you're, you're being a military officer. You're checking on everybody. You're doing what you've been trained to do. When did you realize that this was incredibly serious. Um, so again, this is probably the first time I've ever really talked about it. But so when we had um, Pischel on the back of the aircraft with me, he medically evacuated from Nazad into Camp Bastion. Like, I had no idea. I had no idea that I was hurt. Like, I, I knew that I was f***ed up. You guys can edit that. I apologize for the language. But I knew that I was hurt. Mm-hmm. But I had no idea that my leg was not going to be salvageable. I had no idea that there was a huge hole in my face. I had no idea that there were cervical fractures, that there was potential for me not to be able to walk again. But when they wheeled me in to the makeshift hospital on Camp Bastion, and I saw... Both my gunnery sergeant, my sergeant major, and they both looked at me and they were like, you're going home. And then I had no idea if the one person that I really, oh, shoot. It's okay. Uh, The one person that I really cared about was going to go home with me or stay there or what was going to happen. My heart hurt. Um, So, yeah. So, I... I had just been combat meritoriously promoted to sergeant. And in my mind, there was no way that they were going to send me home. I be- like I know that I was good at my job. And I know that I was a great leader, even if I was a pain in the ass at times. <laughs> um, but it, yeah, it really hurt me to know that I was going home. That's what I hear from soldiers who are wounded, they don't want to go back. They want to stay with their units and their fellow soldiers. Sorry, now I'm getting I'm getting teary-eyed here because I, I know, I, I read about this. I'm fascinated with war stories 
whether they be World War II, which I think is not taught enough in our schools, or the Korean War, Vietnam War, and certainly the Afghanistan War. Um, I, I always imagine when people are hurt like this, they look at the faces of the medical experts who are evaluating them, and they're hunting in those faces. Am I really that bad? What did you see in the faces of people who were tending to you? No, I knew I was going home. Like, not no. I'll take that back. It wasn't like I knew I was going home. I thought in my mind initially, like they were just going to sew like my leg back up. I had no idea how bad my leg was, and I wish I had like a good way of explaining what my face looked like, but. You could you could literally fit a fist through my face. There was no jaw, there were no teeth, my orbital socket, my my nose, everything was shattered. And so on one hand, like I knew I was going home, mm-hmm. but I like it didn't become real until I saw my sergeant major and my gunnery sergeant standing there and staring at me. Like Everything was totally fine until I saw them. Um, I was even choking in my own blood because they were trying to stabilize my neck because of my cervical fractures. Mm -hmm. But when I saw them, I knew it was done. It's such a strange feeling to be a part of because in my head, like I wasn't going, well, I was going home, like I knew it, I could feel it, my entire body was broken, but I wasn't going home just yet. And then when I saw my sergeant major and my gunnery sergeant coming in, that was it, like I was done. Did you ask um, to see a mirror at any point? No, whoa, no, but I will say that the British uh, surgeon that took care of my face, she took lots of pictures because of what I looked like. Mm-hmm. Um, she didn't want me to wake up and be horrified by what I saw. And for that, I'm very grateful. I know. I've seen those pictures. And everybody should see you today, drop dead, supermodel gorgeous on so many <laughs> levels, can I just say. This is Everyone Talks to Liz, and we will be right back. I know a lot of you have had this experience because for those of us who in 2020 were all sent home and we were stuck in a lockdown during the pandemic, we had a lot of time on our hands. And I saw an ad for Masterclass and I thought, I want to better myself. I want access to all of these brilliant people who teach you things. With Masterclass, you can learn from the best to become your best. Masterclass is the only streaming platform where you can learn and grow with more than 200 plus of the world's best and smartest. For just under 10 bucks a month, an annual membership with Masterclass gets you unlimited access to every instructor. And I don't care, you can wake up one morning and say, I want to learn about business. And then another where you say, I want to learn how to survive in the wild if I have no water and no 
fire to make me warm. You can access Masterclass on your phone, on your computer, smart TV, or even in audio mode. And the classes totally make a difference. Don't wait another moment to start your learning journey with Masterclass. Right now, our listeners get an additional 15% off any annual membership at masterclass.com slash Liz. That's 15% off at masterclass.com slash Liz. Masterclass.com slash Liz. All right, so you you were rescued. Uh, I'm sure your family was thinking, thank God, thank God, thank God she's alive. Did you want to be alive when you got back to the States after what had happened? No. No. I am for a couple of different reasons. So I was six weeks away from coming home with my with my team, with my guys, with my squadron, with group. Um, and if anybody wants to take the time to do any kind of research before, um, like when I came home, what with what happened on Camp Bastion, there was a lot uh, that took place, and I felt so guilty that I wasn't there. I wasn't able to be part of it I also felt like there was so much that I could have done so I I don't want to call it survivor's guilt but I also just I feel like it was like a helplessness Mm. um because I was so proud of what we had what we had built as as a unit as a squadron again especially before we were going to retire our colors and everything that there was so much that was left to do left for me to do that I couldn't do. And there you are back in the States, pretty much unable to move 40 surgeries. I mean, we hear a lot about not just PTSD, post-traumatic stress syndrome, um, but suicide attempts. And you did get to that point. Why? Um, so on the one year anniversary of my helicopter crashing, I just decided that my purpose was gone, you know, joining the Marine Corps at such a young age and giving everything that I had to it. And then fighting essentially like year after year um, to fight to be able to stay in. Um, but I didn't see a point in living anymore. Mm-hmm. So I decided that I would, um, yeah, I wanted to take my own life. I gave in. I walked into the Colorado River and I was very fortunate that someone found me. Didn't put enough rocks in my pocket, if you will. And when I woke up in the hospital, my dad came to me and was like, you've got to be shitting me. You know, the like the enemy couldn't kill you, and now you're willing to do it. And that was kind of the turning point. That's but it's so sad because I feel like there are so many people who are out there willing to do the, the same thing. Yep, and they either aren't saved or they don't have that support system, but... Boy, they need saving. And that was a real turning point, as you say, when your dad said, 
if the enemy didn't kill you, they weren't successful at doing it, why the hell would you try and do it yourself? Was that this pivotal moment? And then at that point, it's not like you suddenly felt great and could conquer the world and start climbing the seven summits. This was a long process, Kirsty. You, 2015, find yourself, this is years after the actual accident, you find yourself back in a hospital near death because you got MRSA, the infection that basically courses through a body and and kills it right away. You're told a couple of days before Christmas, you're not going to wake up on Christmas Day. And then you did. What happened? And I, um, I fully believe that's because of the people that surrounded me, the people that gave me their love, their energy, their prayers, whatever you believe in. Um, yeah, and I woke up. And that's why I went on to just to be able to invest in the people around me. And I'm very grateful for that opportunity. Like I went on to support my best friend's dreams um, and everybody around me. Financially, you started giving money and investing in their businesses. Right. Yep. I went on to, sorry. (laughs) Um, Yeah. You know, I had this little nest egg of money because I was, 17 years old when I joined the Marine Corps and all I liked to do was fly and deploy. So I had to save money. You know, I wasn't old enough to go out and drink with anybody or <laughs> do anything, do anything super fun with the Marines. Um, so when I got hurt and then was able, uh, yeah, to turn around and, and well, wake up first. Yeah. I invested in my friends, you know, we hair salons, a CrossFit gym, Uh, my t-shirt company, an art studio. I just went around the room and said, you know what? You gave me your love and your energy. So I'm going to give you the same thing back. And a a a whiskey company? A whiskey company? Or in a brewery. (laughs) Those are the good ones. (laughs) I mean, that's just amazing. It just shows the generosity of your heart. Um, but those people were surrounding you in that hospital room and you wanted to give back the energy that they had given you. I get it. I completely get it. Um, let's let's fast forward now to this cockamamie, I mean, great idea, sorry, um, <laughs> of climbing the world's seven summits. I read that book, Seven Summits, by, is it Frank Wells, I think? Um it's it's unbelievable. I'm one of those people who is from afar truly obsessed with mountain climbing. I don't do it because I'm a big baby and, and I, I can't imagine my retinas <laughs> freezing at the top of Everest, which is what happened to one of the climbers in, in John Krakauer's brilliant book, Into Thin Air. But what got you deciding that you wanted to attempt this? Um, so I first fell in love with, ironically, snowboarding. Again, originally being from Florida, I knew nothing about like the mountains, the snow, like any of this. And then after I got hurt, uh, there was a nonprofit that came into my hospital room and said, hey, how do you feel about learning winter sport? 
I said, you know, I don't even care if it's like something like curling, just get me out of the hospital. <laughs> and then <laughs> no offense to any, no offense athletes, to curlers. Like, like, yeah. uh-uh. <laughs> yeah. um, I was just like, get me out of the hospital. And so I show up to Breckenridge, Colorado. No one tells me no, to be honest. No one looks at my paperwork. And someone teaches me how to snowboard. Nobody should have ever taught me how to snowboard with my brain injury or with my <laughs> leg injury. Um, but they did. And it was pure freaking magic. How many times um, did you fall? Like, talk about the first time they strapped you in. Oh, my gosh. Well, and it wasn't even that. Well, okay. It was terrible coming off of the chair left. But it wasn't even that bad. <laughs> that is the hard part, I must say. Yes. Now, the chairlift is the most intimidating part of any of it. But going downhill, like downhill and just like being able to feel all of it, like there was, no, there was, yeah, I fell and I face planted time and time again. And probably my tailbone hurt more than anything. Mm-hmm. But there was nothing more freeing because nobody else could do that for me. You know, sure, somebody else could help me and tell me what to expect. But yeah, snowboarding and even falling and as much as it like sucked at times, Mm -hmm. like nobody could do that sport for me. And that was my introduction to the mountains. And that's what changed everything for me. What was the first one you attempted? Uh, Climbing? Yeah. Big mountaineering? Uh, So again... So I had already become um, the USASA national champion. I was fifth in the world. And then I had to have another surgery in 2015. And um, it robbed me of my 2015-2016 snowboarding season. And I was kind of at a loss as to what I was going to do. And as a last-ditch effort, don't get me wrong, I'm very, very proud of what I accomplished in snowboarding. And mm-hmm. I am very proud of all of my medals and everything, but as a last ditch effort to be able to keep like my heart alive, to keep who I am alive. I decided that I was going to climb Kilimanjaro in March of 2017. And that was very shortly after having to have a huge surgery um, in 2016. And I, I went down to Africa and it changed my world. Like, I had no idea what I was really going down there. Like, I knew that I was going down there to climb a mountain. I knew that I was going down there to be able to impact lives. But when I actually got down to Tanzania and experienced the culture, experienced the lives that I'd be able to impact and um, the change that I could have, Mm. all while doing something that I was freaking good at. Like, I am strong. I can climb mountains (laughs) like no other. (laughs) Like, not to cheat my own horn. Like, I can snowboard mediocrely, but I can climb mountains like no other. And so when I learned that I could climb mountains and really affect, um, like, the culture and the community and the people of the places that I was going to climb in, that's when my life really changed. What was the most difficult one before you attempted Everest? Kirsten's. Um, so it's the highest point. So the seven summits is kind of like controversial. There's two different ways of doing it. Okay. Um, and one is if you're going to climb the highest point in Australia, which is Kosciuszko, which is 7,000 feet, which is nothing. It's right. a walk in the park. Right. You can literally take a 
Cherry Lift Up. Ah, it's the Blue, or you Blue Hill walk- Mountains in Massachusetts. <laughs> it's nothing. Yeah. <laughs> um, or there's another route that you like another avenue that you can go, and it clusters in all of the surrounding islands into Australia. And uh, so I decided that I was going to do that. So of course you did. Ends, yeah. No shortcuts. <laughs> Yeah, uh, exactly. Um, so Kirsten's, um, I saw in Indonesia. It was just, it's just, it's a hard, first of all, it's a hard mountain to get to. It's a hard mountain to, um, it's just tough. Like it is, oh my gosh, 76 miles through a jungle of people who don't want you there. And then to get to this rock face, mm. it is the sharpest rock, like it will fillet you. It is a rock that, yeah, will eat you alive. And then out, out there, it's totally different than Western climbing. Like it is, like you were, you go past plaques of people who are like, so and so died here, so and so died here. It is, it's foreign territory mm. for a lot of us. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's like. There's a tattoo on my arm that says die living and it is purely because of that mountain. So when I summited Karsten's um, and came down, I felt everything. I was, I was afraid. I was terrified. I had no idea it was coming. I jokingly said that I found Jesus on that mountain, <laughs> um, but it was t- like, it was, ah. it sounds like <laughs> it. It sounds like it. Oh. This is everyone talks to Liz and we're going to be right back. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash Clayman. Just go to Indeed.com slash Clayman right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash Clayman. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. You know, I want to get to Everest. Your first attempt, because there have been two. Your first attempt, you got within 200 feet of the very top. Um, So for those of you who don't know Everest, you're climbing, you're climbing. It's taking days. Base camp this. You got to adjust to the altitude. Everybody's not feeling great. Oxygen tanks, etc. But it's almost like nature is laughing in people's faces because you get to the almost top, and then there's something called the Hillary Step, which is that sheer rock, I believe, bit of rock at the very top, named after Sir Edmund Hillary, the famed climber, British climber. You got within 200 feet and turned around. What was that like? Um, yeah, it broke my heart. I, I have no other way of putting it, but it broke my heart. Like, I knew, I knew I had it. But it also didn't mean anything to me if I summited without my people. You know, I had an entire climbing team with me. And if they were going to run out of oxygen 
or if I was going to stand on the summit by myself, forget it. What good is that? No. Like I will go down with my team every single time. So you could have made it, you believe? Oh, absolutely. No, my Sherpa came up to me and said, they are going down. You and I are going up. And I said, no. Wow. And I like that, that did it hurt at the time, but I will never forget looking down at my two teammates, grown ass men, the looks on their faces and knowing that they didn't have oxygen. No way. I would never summit that mountain without my team. You guys, Sorry. did I tell you she is one of a kind? <laughs> I, I, it's just the most people would be so selfish. Look all of the money I spent. Look all the people who are waiting to hear that I made it. They want to see that picture. They want to see the flag. And and you you passed on that. Uh, you turned around, and you attempted again. How many? What what was the time distance between the first and the second attempt? Oh yes. Well, now you're now you're gonna really make me cry because I haven't talked to anybody about this. Um, yeah. Um. So I attempted Everest the first time, May of 2019. Mm-hmm. Then obviously attempted this time in 2023, so four years. Mm-hmm. One of the individuals who was on the mountain with me last time, one of the ones who I said that I wouldn't I would not um summit without them. Um, I actually had to turn him around at camp two this year and then attempt to summit by myself. So uh, very, very, yeah, very tough. When did you realize it wasn't going to happen this second time? At the same time that I turned around last time, sadly. So basically right below the south summit. Um, and again, it just, it just wasn't right. Like I looked up the line of people ahead of me, all of the headlamps that weren't moving. So, and actually I'll preface this a little bit better. So last time in 2019, my team put in the boot pack for everybody. We put in the trail for everyone. We followed the ice doctor. We followed the rope fixers, everybody up. Um, we were the first team up. So last time was totally different. It was just me and my guys, literally no one else on the mountain. Um, this time around when I decided to turn around, there were probably a hundred people ahead of me. And then what? Oh yeah. Yeah. It gets crowded. I didn't know it was a hundred. Oh Yeah. Um, and we are talking probably 200 people below me. And so this time, so last time that I, t- I decided to turn around, it was totally about my team. Right. Like, it was about us. This time it was about self-preservation. Okay. Period. Okay. What did you feel and what did you think? Was it that... You saw that line and you said, no, nope, I'm, I'm not going to make it if I if I continue to pursue this. I close to that. Yeah. Um, no, I looked at that line and realized that I didn't because I had to turn my climbing partner around at camp two. Mm-hmm. I was with two individuals who are 
incredibly talented, you know, um, there, but there was still a language barrier and I didn't have the right team in place in, if things got sideways, period. And if I would have continued going up and something happened to me, it would have been detrimental to anybody who was behind me or ahead of me. Got so it. if anyone's unfamiliar with what, how things on Everest take place, everything happens on one line. You have protection lines. But that also means that you have, well, in this case, you have 20 or 30 people on one line. And so if something happened to me and people had to pass me or if people didn't understand like what I needed or how to help me, it would have gotten myself hurt or a lot of other people hurt. And I wasn't willing to do that. Um, so if anybody were to watch like or even look at the tracker that tons of people around the world were actually following, there was a point where I came back down, I went up across this crazy ridge and then sat at a place called the balcony. And really tried to decide if I was making the right decision as far as going down. And I knew that I was when there were people going to sleep in the snow and not waking back. Right. right. It was the coldest night of the year. It was the deadliest night of the year. It was the deadliest season. Um, people died. So, a lot of people died. A lot of people died. Um and so, I don't know, it pains me. I was su- like, there was a point in time where I was super embarrassed because I knew that there were so many people watching me on this climb. But I also, I was able to be a part of some pretty um, big rescues. I was also a part of hmm. being able to aid some people who got severely hurt. They're over. 250 cold injury cases and some of those like I am grateful that I was able to help with um and again it just it just wasn't my time and it was also something where um you know I've worked really really hard climbing in gosh 36 countries now mm-hmm. and on all seven continents and I was never confident you know or I never felt worthy of being called a mountaineer. And now I'm in a position where, yeah, I can see that I turned around twice on Everest, but I am a mountaineer. Oh, yeah. Um, no, I'm a mountaineer, and I'm a mountaineer because I can make the right decisions, and I can also take care of people on the mountain. Oh. And that's what I did this time. And That's such insight. No one can take that away from me. No way. That is yours always. Of the the logical next question, you think about trying one more time? I decided that I was going to the moment that I (laughs) decided to turn around. Okay. um, Um, I I will not be with you. I will not be (laughs) joining you on that. Um, (laughs) But yeah. (laughs) Okay. Well, let me let me give you a new like yeah. idea but um i don't know if i would ever climb from the south side again um but i did uh receive an offer to climb a mountain called choyoyu which is one of the 14 8000 meter peaks that can only be accessed from the north side which also says that everest is accessible now 
on oh. the north side. Okay. So, um, which is, which is huge. Um, climbing Everest from Tibet has, yeah, been inaccessible for, gosh, COVID, since COVID. <laughs> I don't know the best, like, where to put that, um, but it's open now and something that I'm willing to explore. If you are, yeah. I would like to help sponsor you, Kirsty. I'm, I really do. I, I have known you for years now. Because I'm part of buildinghomesforheroes.org, where we build our most severely wounded warriors' homes that are mortgage-free and customized to their injuries. And I got to know you years ago, and you and I are inextricably linked, I feel like. Um, so I'm, I'm right there with you. I'm absolutely right there with you. Well, yeah, I'm trying not to cry. Um no, I appreciate all that you are, all that you do to support Building Homes for Heroes and, of course, our friendship. Um, everything that you do is absolutely amazing and so genuine. And when I do go back, which will be next year, I am oh. carrying you with me. So, Oh, yeah, <laughs> absolutely. In your little pocket. I'll be right there. <laughs> the redheaded newscaster. <laughs> I am so now in my heart, Liz. In my heart, (laughs) God bless you. I I love the fact that you've been so raw and honest uh, with us and with our listeners. They're a special group of people, Kirsty. I swear, they care about these kinds of stories and they they extract what really matters from them and use that to move forward. And I'm just so grateful that you've been joining us for this. Thank you so much. Well, I will, um, I'll have you know that was the first time that I've been very open and honest about all of that. Yesterday was the first time that I actually cried and processed failure, if you will. So um, it's okay. That's why I appreciate the space to be able to be honest and transparent. Well, I love you. And um, next year in or on Everest, how about that? (laughs) Thank you so much. I love you too, Liz. Thank you. Kirstie Annis, I don't want to say anything more to you guys. You know, her words have spoken at all. So you know that I care deeply that you hear these stories. And I hope you take this one right into your heart and you understand how hard she fought from being about as low as you can go. And look at all she's accomplished. So get to it. I will too, I promise. Thanks so much for tuning in. Want to listen ad-free? You can do it with a Fox News Podcasts Plus subscription on Apple Podcasts. And then Amazon Prime members, you can listen to this show ad-free on the Amazon Music app. Cudlow on Fox Business is now on the go for podcast fans. Get key interviews with the biggest business newsmakers of the day. The Cudlow Podcast will be available on the go after the show every weekday at foxbusinesspodcasts.com or wherever you download your favorite podcasts.